a new series this morning, uh, one that I am looking forward to. It's not just going to be in the book of Exodus, uh, but we'll study the whole Bible uh, over the next several weeks together. But we want to use Exodus as the lens in which we look at the Bible. What we will find is the reoccurring theme of God calling people out and rescuing them, redeeming them, saving them, and bringing them to new life. We will see this theme throughout the Bible. And so what I'd like for us to do is as we gather around God's word and we see a people who are in the midst of a struggle or difficulty, God calling them out and bringing them to new life. So as we walk through the text this morning, I hope that you'll be encouraged to know that whatever you're going through, God hears your cries and he cares deeply for you and he is seeking to draw us out and nearer to him. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning together, and I pray as we study your word that you would open our hearts to you and your spirit, that we would be encouraged today to know that you are a faithful God who redeems and saves. You hear the cry of your people. Lord, you, you know us and you love us. Help us, Lord, to see this story play out throughout Scripture. And not just in scripture, but to see it in our daily lives. Lord, that we would know that you are a redeemer and friend. That you draw us to new life. We thank you for this day. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's get right into the story. There's a lot to cover, and I just want to draw a few things to your attention. In Exodus 1, we uh, it's the next book after Genesis. And it's important for us to see just how much Exodus relies on Genesis. You can't really have Exodus without Genesis. And it starts right from the very beginning. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So it's the 12 tribes of Israel. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. All right, so we basically got chapters uh, 12 of Genesis all the way through 50, all covered in like this basic little introduction. The people of Israel, Jacob's family, Jacob's descendants, and Joseph, they are all now in Egypt, and it's 70 in all. That's not very many people. Like, we all, hey gang, let's all of us go to, uh, go to Egypt, all right? And then from this, now in verse 6, it says, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, uh, but, the, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So hey gang, we uh, were fruitful and we multiplied and we grew into a great nation, just like God said they would. If you uh, pick up in your Bible and you were to turn back, you would think, hopefully, you're reading with, reading with Genesis in mind, and you think, what does this sound like? Well, it sounds like Genesis 1.28, doesn't it? God, he creates his creation, and he says what? Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And this is exactly what they do. After the flood, what does God say to Noah? Be 
fruitful and multiply. And then uh, he says to Abraham, if you were to hop over to 17.6, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will, uh, I will make many nations come from you and kings from you. I will grow you into a great nation. God is fulfilling what he had promised and what he commanded and what he asked of his creation, be fruitful and multiply. God is making good uh, on his promise to Abraham to grow this into a great and mighty nation. So we should already be picking up that, that Moses wants us to think about Genesis as we walk through Exodus. That creation and the story of creation and what God was doing in the beginning is still something that should be in the hearts and minds of the readers of Exodus. As we continue along, it says in verse 8, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Now, why did Joseph mean something to the previous kings? Well, Joseph was the one who said he interpreted the dreams. Remember that? And Joseph interpreted the Pharaoh's dreams, and he said, hey, we're going to have seven good years and seven bad years, and it's really smart of us to keep back some of the grains while things are good so that in the seven years of drought and famine that we would be able to care for our people. And so they do exactly that. And Pharaoh is like, Joseph, you demand. And they were remembered, and they were protected, and they grew. But then Joseph meant nothing now in verse 8. And he says, look, in verse 9, he said to his people, the Israelites, they have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Pharaoh is filled with fear. He's looking at this nation that has been fruitful and multiplied. Hey, there were just 70 people you know, a couple hundred years ago. And now they are a mighty nation that has grown in our midst. They are a very real threat to our sort of sovereignty, to our, uh, our way of life. And so fear breaks out. And so they put slave masters over them to oppress them, verse 11, with forced labor. And they built Pythom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. I think one of the most, I think one of the most, uh, speaking of oppression, you know, there's a child crying out here. Uh, good timing, kid. Thank you. We had that all planned out. Uh, uh, anyways, so if you think about it, verse 12 is really important to understanding what's going on. They have oppressed the Israelites. They are bearing down on them, but there is growth and hope in the midst of it. There is the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Like the more weeding that they were trying to do, the more the weeds filled in, in, in that sense. It was like, we have to get rid of them, we have, to, uh, we have to do something about them. And the more they tried to oppress them, the more they spread. And we need to have that sort of seated in our thought right now at this moment of what God does in the midst of oppression. Because I think that uh, when we land, start landing the plane and kind of make sense of today's text, I think you need to have verse 12 at the heart of it. I think all application and understanding comes from what God does in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of groaning and pain and suffering, what God is up to. 
And so we need to keep chapter, uh, verse 12 sitting in our hearts and minds. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor. All right, jumped past 13. They worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all the harsh labor. The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And so the, the empire is bearing down on them, oppressing them, making their lives uh, incredibly painful and difficult. The king of Egypt then said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the, on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. So more bearing down on them, more bringing harsh realities into the, their world, trying to eradicate them. You know, they were killing the boys because they would have been recruited into the army. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. They're like all of our wives here, you know, just amazing women, vigorous. Uh, we'll just keep moving on. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And so God is working in the midst of this. The more Pharaoh is bearing down, the more ruthless he becomes, the sort of genocide that is happening, the midwives have no part of it. And God blesses these midwives and cares for them. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. We know that how the story goes, if you're somewhat familiar with this, but this command will turn against Pharaoh. His firstborn of Egypt will all die. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now that word, fine child, or I don't know what uh, translation you're reading from, it might be that he was found to be handsome, he was a good-looking boy, and it's kind of like, you know, what mom doesn't think their baby's handsome? You know, you, some people, you know, there's that Seinfeld episode where it's the ugly baby, you know, and they're like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a great episode, but... Uh, uh, we should just watch Seinfeld together, but that, that's probably not the point of today's message. Uh, but you know, you know what, what mom doesn't see their child is beautiful, and, and that's maybe what's going on, like Moses was a handsome young lad, but the word there is tov. Uh, we would transliterate it as T-O-V, tov. And I want to tell you that this verse, this word, uh, happens uh, in Genesis 1. It happens a bunch of times, and you are fam very familiar with it. You, you know this word. When God finished his day of, first day of creation, and he looked at all that he created, what did he say? It is good. And then on the second day, when he finished his work in creation, what did he say? It is good. And on the third day, it is good. On the fourth day, it is good. On the fifth day, it is good. On the sixth day, it is very good. It's very tov. When Moses was born, his mom looked at him and said, 
He is tov. He wants, the Exodus writer, Moses, wants us to read and know that he's talking about Genesis again. What God is doing right now is something that is good. He looks at Moses, or his mom looks at Moses and says, he is good. And she hides him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it, and among the reeds along the bank of the Nile, his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. We have another Genesis thing happening right here. Does anybody know where the or the Genesis, something from Genesis is popping out here? The word basket. The word basket is the same exact word used for something else in Genesis. Do we know what it is? The ark. The ark, the very same thing that Moses is placed in is the very same word on a you know, much grander scale as the word ark. It's teba. Genesis influences Exodus. And if you see it, if you know what you're sort of looking for and sort of picking up on some of the clues, there is a very important reason, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. She, so the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I'll, I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Now Moses' name will become something that he lives into. Drawing him out of the water, he will then, uh, God will draw the people of God through the water. There is a sense of you know, foreshadowing of what God is going to do in the life of Moses. In verses 11 through 22, uh, Moses, he flees and runs uh, away. He goes to Midian. Midian uh, in Midian, he meets Zipporah. He gives birth to a son. And Moses, they have a family. And then in verse 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out. They cry for help because of their slavery. Uh, they cry, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. There's one more clue, one more thing going back to Genesis, Genesis 12, 16, 17, and really the rest of it as we get Jacob, Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. He's remembering his covenant. He remembers, oh yeah, I promised Abraham that I would grow him into a great and mighty nation. God looks on the Israelites and he's concerned about them. Chapters 3 and 4 are the call of Moses, and we'll get to that next week. But for now, I want to ask the question, why, why 
are we to read Exodus with an eye on Genesis? And I, the more I've thought and more I've reflected on this text, I, I think about the creation story in and of itself. In the beginning was the word, uh, what, wait, I started quoting first, uh, John 1. In the beginning, God, which is the same thing, but never mind. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And what we get from the sense of the opening chapter of the Bible is that there is chaos and there is separation. And what God does in creation is form and fill. He takes the creation and he creates order. And I imagine in the context of anyone who would look at the Exodus story and they would get a sense of the despair and the ruthlessness and the suffering and the depravity and all of the hurt, everything that is bearing down on them to the point where now they are trying to kill our children. The crying out groans of of Israelites in Egypt would have been, God, do you still hear us? God, do you still love us? Do you understand the chaos? Do you understand the despair that we are in? And so God is pointing them to, as I created and as I brought light in the midst of darkness, I want you to know that God is still going to bring light, that God is still going to bring something good from the despair and the depravity and the brokenness of the world. And so God, in the chaos of despair, God is still forming and filling in what He is doing. What God's liberation story is, what God is doing in redeeming and saving is always an act of creation. Hear me on this. That what we will see over the course of Scripture is that in the midst of slavery, in the midst of despair, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of chaos, what God is doing is bringing new life. It's hard for us to feel that and understand that. And it would have been impossibly difficult for Israelites in Egypt to know just what lengths God was going to go through to show that He is a God who in despair brings life that God will bring new life out of brokenness that's what he did in the story of creation in Genesis it's what he's doing in the book of Exodus wherever we pick up the story of scripture there is some some aspect of the Exodus story happening this morning we partook of of uh, the Lord's Supper, and we were in part participating in the Exodus story because God would redeem and save the people, and He would, uh, the Lamb's blood, and Exodus, where we get the Passover, is in the book of Exodus, and what we honor is God redeeming and saving. And so I'm excited about this series because we're going to get to look at a lot of different parts of the Bible, but all of it is pointing us to God working to redeem and save and to bring life. That we might, uh, another reflection for me as we think about this text is that we might be tempted to believe in our own lives that when difficulty strikes, that God has forgotten us as well. All of us can relate with the Israelites. All of us can have moments and seasons in our life where it feels like the despair is too much and the difficulty is too much to bear. But this is a book about hope. This is a book about God bringing new creation and new life. We may be tempted to think that God is no longer in control, but 
we can know that God is always in control. We, we fall into this trap, and I see it play out every four years, that God either loves us or God hates us. <laughs> and it all depends on who's in office. And we may not articulate that, but we have this fear that we might have these seasons of good and we'll have these seasons of bad. And no matter who is in office, whether it's whoever is in office in Egypt, no matter who their pharaoh is, and no, no matter who our president is, it doesn't mean that God is no longer in control. It's that verse 12 again, where they have turned from favor into now they are a threat to Egypt, and they are being filled with despair and brokenness. And we might be tempted to think that when the emperor bears down on us that we no longer have a God in office. And it's the assurances of Scripture and the assurances of Colossians 1 that Jesus was with God in the beginning and he's still with God right now and he's the one in control. That in him, he holds all things together. And as we reflect even further, God hears us and he holds on to us. He draws nears, nearer to us. No matter who believes themselves to be the ruler of the world, we know who truly is. The creator of heaven and earth. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know and the other reflection, the other assurance is that God does his greatest creative work in the midst of the world's greatest despair. What is the fastest growing Christian? Uh, what is the fastest? I'm not asking it right. What nation is growing more Christians and fostering more Christianity than any other nation in the world? China and, South, and, and Africa. <laughs> but China is one of the most oppressive places for Christianity. North Korea as we don't know how many Christians are there, but it, Christianity is growing in North Korea. Some of the most oppressive places in the world towards Christianity are also where we are the fastest growing. Tertullian said the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. That the more they oppressed, the more Egypt oppressed Israel, the more it grew. The same story has been true of the church that the greater the oppression of the church, the more it has grown. God works mysteriously in the despair of the world, and his message brings hope. And so the question might be, like, if you're like me, it's like, why? What, that, you know, it's like, it seems like, hey, if it were really easy, it would be a lot easier to get everybody on board, right? Like, hey, look, free slides and cupcakes, Right? That would be life, right? I mean, what's, what's better than that? You get to the end of the slide, you get a cupcake. Do it again. <laughs> Thank you, Lily. I love you. But instead, Jesus doesn't invite us to slides and cupcakes. He invites us to lay down our lives, and there are no promises or assurances that your life won't get infinitely more difficult. Yet God uses that to grow his church. He uses the oppression and the brokenness and the hurt. And all I can come up with, with all of my earthly wisdom, is, is that God is delivering a message of 
hope. And there is so much better in the world than slides and cupcakes when you think about the importance of hope. The importance of knowing that no matter how bad it gets, there is one who is greater than it all. There, no, no matter how much despair and death and brokenness and hurt, there is one who is redeeming and saving, the one who is breaking into the world, who is setting the world right, who is bringing justice, who is righting the wrongs, who is greater than it all. And so the power of hope in the midst of despair is what brings the church along. It's what brings us along each day to know that no matter how bad it gets, no matter what suffering there is, no matter how hard it is in this moment, there is always a greater hope because Jesus is greater than death. Jesus is greater than our despair. Jesus is greater than the darkness. Jesus is life, light, hope, truth. He is everything we need, and he is the Spirit among us, leading us and guiding us. And so it's this hope in the midst of all of the hurt and all of the suffering that we can know that no matter how great the oppression, God is greater than our oppressors. God is greater than the darkness. God will keep working his greatest creative work in the midst of the world's greatest despair. I know that to be true because I believe in the cross. That in the moment of greatest despair, God does his greatest creative work to redeem and save and bring new life. Exodus is about God calling us out, out of darkness and into the light, out of despair and into hope, out of the deep and into heaven, out of death and into life, out of the dominions of this world and into the reign of Christ, out of slavery and into service and worship. And it's a story. It's a story not about God just redeeming people to bring them up on top of a mountain and say, here's all the rules. There's a big chunk of Exodus where it is all rules. And I'll tell you what, it gets a little hard to read. Do this and don't do that. But God is looking for something far beyond Sinai. He's saying, give me my people so that they might come and worship me. The end of the story is not Sinai. The end of the story is Zion. The end of the story is a place together where we worship and we glorify God. The end is the story of a new creation, a new life, where God's people are together worshiping and celebrating him. And I want to take you through the story, and I want to relive this story, because it's this story that will carry us through into the next chapters of our lives. It's this story that's told over and over again, time and time again, about despair and suffering and hurt, but God being greater than it all and remembering his promises and calling us to him. And so I want to function with some basic sort of convictions and application. My encouragement to you today is to walk in hope that our God saves and he remembers you. I want to encourage us to fix our eyes on things above, not on earthly things. The oppression, depravity, the suffering, when that is all happening, it is so easy to just sort of look right in front of us and be so overwhelmed by what's going on right in front of us. But Paul 
calls us to fix our eyes on things above, not on earthly. Put our eyes on Christ. Fix our eyes on him. Give encouragement, love, and grace to everyone that you meet, telling the people of the hope of the risen Christ. Tell people the Exodus story. Tell people that they are out of death and into life through Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to trust in God and seek first his kingdom in everything that you do. Matthew 6, 33. That in the midst of the worries and the anxiety of life, Jesus tells us not to worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. He tells us to put our focus, our attention on Jesus Christ, his kingdom, and his righteousness. Draw near to God through service, loving your neighbors, caring for the poor. Keep moving forward. And I invite you to hear the call of God to come out of the empire. The empire of greed. The empire of power. The empire of control. The empire of fear. The empire of death. The empire of social media. The empire of uh, news media. The empire of controlling things. The empire that has caused so much worry and strife and anxiety. God is calling us out of the empire to live under the authority of Christ, to live in the kingdom of God, to enjoy new life. God is calling us out of darkness and into the light. God is calling us out of the empires of this world into the kingdom of God. God is calling us out of slavery to sin and into new life. That new life is enjoyed together. It's enjoyed walking together with Christ. You are not alone. We are with you and we love you. Let's go through life together, trusting and knowing that God has heard our cries and gives us new life in him. If this is a new message for you, and in all of this ADHD um, presentation, you caught on to an important truth that God loves you and saves you and wants you to be a part of his life, I invite you to come out of death and into life through Christ. And if you would like to know more about what that means, I'd love to encourage you in that. But for many of you, this is simply a reminder of what is assured to us in 2 Corinthians 5.17. For those of you who are in Christ Jesus, the old is gone and the new is here. You are a new creation in Christ. So live the new creation life. Walk with him. Seek his kingdom. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We love you and we thank you that we are a new creation through your son, Christ Jesus. And as we reflect on and as we learn and grow and just see your story continually playing out, Lord, of you hearing the cries of your people, Lord, as that story is still true from yesterday, we know it's still true today and for tomorrow as well. So some of us might come here this morning, Lord, with a lot of despair, a lot of suffering, a lot of darkness, and a lot of hurt. God, would you please assure that indiv those individuals this morning that they are heard by you and they are loved by you. 
And Lord, we know that if you hear us, you are also responding. You are also acting. You are also giving. You are also filling this place with mercy and love and grace and hope that no matter where we've come from, no matter what messes we've made of our lives, no matter what darkness we've fallen into, you are greater. Let us not forget the assurances we have in you today. God, encourage us as a church family to grow together, to walk together, to enjoy life and hopes and encouragement, or that we would glorify you in what we do. Be with this church family. Fill our hearts with your spirit. Unite us together in the love of Christ, the unity of the cross. Draw us near to you, Lord, as we live a new life with you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us in response?